0: This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 25th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. Georgina Godwin broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, we'll have a look through the front pages with the writer Alex von Tunzelman. We'll join our Washington correspondent to look at the results of a survey on diplomacy and...
1: Partygate was the series of revelations to the effect that during the periods of the COVID-19 pandemic when the people of the United Kingdom were being ordered to stay at home, 10 Downing Street was often difficult to distinguish from Led Zeppelin's dressing rooms.
0: Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller recaps what we learned this week. That's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. But first, the news. U.S. President Joe Biden, appearing in Ottawa with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, said he would continue to pressure Putin and help Ukraine. Meanwhile, Air Force commanders from Sweden, Norway, Finland and Denmark announced they've signed a letter of intent to create a unified Nordic air defence aimed at countering the rising threat from Russia. Pro-Iranian forces in Syria said in an online statement late on Friday that they have a long arm to respond to further U.S. strikes on their positions after tit-for-tat strikes in Syria over the last 24 hours. And the Honduran foreign minister travelled to China this week to open relations after President Castro said her government would move to forge ties with Beijing, Honduras being one of only 14 countries to formally recognise Taiwan. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Let's flick through some of the day's papers now with the historian, broadcaster and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman. Alex, welcome back. You've just been to two of my favourite festivals in the world, literary festivals, Jaipur and the wonderful Lahore.
2: Yes, absolutely. It's been a real pleasure um, going back to South Asia after uh, after the pandemic. Haven't been for a while since then. And just absolutely fantastic festivals, both of them, really world class. So mm. what a treat.
0: <laughs> Have they sent back the right person? How do I know you are really Alex von Tunzelman? Ah.
2: Well, the mystery deepens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, I have to look at your ears. That's how you tell if somebody is who they say they are?
2: I think ears are more conclusive, yes, even than fingerprints. Right, okay. Well, I wasn't that
0: familiar with your ears beforehand, (laughs) so I'm not sure I could. But the thing is, last time I saw you, your hair was pink and now it's
2: purple. Well, you know, exactly. I could be anyone. You could be anyone. just swap
0: me in. What about Vladimir Putin? (laughs) Because there are allegations that he's using a body double.
2: I mean, these have gone viral this week because um, Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian politicians started uh, tweeting about these pictures of Vladimir Putin where he allegedly looked a little different. And so, you know, the newspapers have kind of spread this like wildfire. Uh, And that was when he was in
0: Mariupol. So he was saying Putin didn't go
2: to Ukraine. Exactly. Well, I mean, the first time that Putin perhaps has seemed slightly relatable is the idea that he has body doubles to go to events he doesn't want to go to. I God, <laughs> wouldn't we all like perhaps that? we all need one. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, I, I mean, I found this story fascinating as a historian because I mean, there's, body doubles are such a kind of recurring, largely myth Um, in history. I mean, definitely some people have had them. Stalin had them and so forth. And a couple of those have been identified. One called Rashid and one called Felix Dadaev, who was supposed to distract people when he was at Yalta and all of this. Didn't really work. Um, (laughs) But, you know, these were sort of, you know, he he was certainly said to use them. So Putin, and I think a sort of interesting factor of this is how actually the body double story to an extent helps Putin's propaganda. I think, because, you know, um, there's a long tradition, as I say, of these dictators like Saddam Hussein, of course, was rumoured to have several body doubles um, at the time of the invasion of Iraq, Um, to the point where people were so paranoid about it that when um, US forces actually captured Saddam, they DNA tested him to make sure they got the real guy. And you know, there's always these stories that these, you know, dictators force their body doubles to have plastic surgery to look more like them and all of this stuff. Um, But I think for those dictators there's a real function in that story in that it really helps to kind of multiply their presence in a country and it helps to build them up as an almost sort of supernatural figure almost tapping into these kind of medieval fantasies about disappearing kings and you know reappearing ones and it and I think it sort of you know it creates fear and uncertainty and all these things that they can rather use so so I wonder whether, Putin perhaps doesn't hate these stories as much as you might mm. think he does.
0: Now, we've got to point out that our source here for this particular one is the mirror, the Daily Mirror, which, I, yeah. you know, perhaps not, not the, the my paper of choice, but uh, there are some photographs here. And I have to say, it does look like a different person. Well, you
2: know, the thing is, I mean, Putin's face is his, <laughs> could have an essay written on it in and of itself. In that he certainly appears to be no particular stranger to the Botox needle uh, and possibly the fillers as well. Um, but on the other hand, I think you are always in a bit of danger comparing a single photo because what you can see, he, his chin does look different. But all of us can pull a funny face in a single picture. I mean, so a couple of years ago there were a lot of rumours that Kim Jong Un had a body double. It just turned out he'd lost a bit of weight. <laughs>
0: I'm not convinced though looking at these Putin pictures I really am not. Are I'm, you a
2: believer? Are you? I think I might
0: be. Does that, <laughs> does that make me like one of the tin hat people?
2: Well, Possibly, possibly not. Snopes has said it's not true, um, that it's definitely still him. I think, you know, we have, as I say, it, it's all a question of seeing what you want to see a little bit. Um, and they do have some ear analysis, everything, everyone's been getting into it. You know, all I'll say is that Putin came up through the KGB. He's very into these ideas of uh Deception and disinformation, and creating these situations. So I'm sure he's probably uh, these are. He might not be enjoying all the speculation about how weird his face looks now, but he is probably <laughs> um, he's probably quite satisfied that these stories creating uh, kind of a myth around him are circulating.
0: As you say, I mean, forever these kind of things have been around, those kind of stories of the disappearing kings, as you say. Well, our own king, it seems, has just done a disappearing act from Paris. He's not going to go. His state visit has been called off.
2: No, um, absolutely. Well, it's hopefully, I mean, they're saying postponed. They're going to try and um, reschedule it. This is supposed to be the first overseas trip uh, for King Charles III um, so you know uh, and sort of as Britain and France are trying to rebuild relations kind of after Brexit um, this was going to be sort of the crowning glory rather literally um, but of course as I'm sure many of listeners have been following um, the conditions in Paris and France generally currently are pretty disrupted I mean extraordinary story in the FT about it about you know sort of 900 fires in Paris alone um, kind of being set and you know the strikers really kind of you know, creating this, you know, very chaotic situation. And this is all striking about these pension reforms that Macron is pretty determined to push through, but uh, but is meeting huge resistance. And of course, in the middle of that, I think they all feel that uh, a royal trip turning up was, is just far too open to... Um, to something going horribly wrong.
0: Absolutely the front page of the Times today has a a picture that just shows absolute chaos, I mean burning rubbish they say up to a million people might have been out on the streets, I mean it's extraordinary.
2: I mean huge scale, it's absolutely astonishing I mean I was speaking to a French friend last night and just saying perhaps we need some of this in Britain where our pension age is considerably higher but I mean my goodness, absolutely concerted resistance and I think it would be very interesting to see how this turns out, I mean yes uh, you know obviously the far left leader Jean Jean-Luc Mélenchon is quoted in the FT. I mean, he, you know, of course, is very critical of Macron. He said, you know, the meeting of the kings, plural, at Versailles has been scuppered by popular censure. So, you know, he's trying to also refer to Macron as a kind of authoritarian ruler, a king in mm. and of himself. Mm. And, and you know, clearly that has some traction
0: Yeah, Now obviously the visit of King Charles to France is a big diplomatic push but the United States and China couldn't be more different in their approaches to diplomacy. Young adults in Europe still find plenty to criticise about both superpowers and how they conduct themselves on the global stage. Well the Pew Research Centre in Washington has been conducting a series of focus groups with adults between the ages of 18 and 29 in four countries the US, the UK, France and Germany. Laura Silva is Pew's Associate Director of Global Attitudes Research. She's been speaking with Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermak, about the results.
3: One of the things that was really striking to us was that people are broadly critical of both superpowers. So we have in our data, for example, that people tend to see the US more positively than China. They tend to have more confidence in President Biden than they do in President Xi Jinping. But when it comes to how people actually spoke about these two countries, it was widely critical. However, what they criticized was extremely different for the two countries. So for the US, a lot of it was about disappointed expectations. This idea that the US could be kind of a beacon on the hill democracy, but it's really not living up to that right now. When it came to China, it didn't feel like the younger people had particular expectations for China to behave the way they would want their own government to behave necessarily. China was seen as the world's factory and it was regularly critiqued for its human rights abuses. So the criticisms were really different between the two countries, but both were heavily criticized.
4: It was interesting that there was this critique of the U.S. as sort of the world's policeman, And you do hear that a lot, obviously, over the decades. Mm -hmm. I guess it struck me kind of that even for young people, that was an issue, particularly because you might argue that here in the U.S., we're pulling back a bit from that role. You know, Biden left Afghanistan, Iraq. Is there a difference between the way European countries and even Americans view that, or are they kind of on the same page that the U.S. should pull back a bit?
3: Honestly, there were more similarities than differences between American adults and um, European young adults. Where people differed was really whether or not they were kind of left leaning or right leaning, and whether or not they were more domestically focused or internationally focused. So, for people who want to be more domestically focused in the US, there were certainly a lot of critiques about us as a world policeman. The idea, we need to stop doing that, we need to focus here, we need to get our own house in order so that we're not hypocritical going overseas saying you need to fix X when that same problem is one that we have here. And we did hear that from younger Europeans too, the idea that their government and the U.S. should not be engaged in moralizing or saying like you need to fix your human rights, you need to fix your democracy, because there are problems that abound in German society, British society, French society that these young people could point to. There was still a sense, though, with some people on the right that the U.S. has an important role that it needs to play in terms of guaranteeing security. For example, in the case of standing up to Russia. So not everyone felt like the U.S. should back out of all commitments. Mm -hmm. To the degree that people want the U.S. to be involved, it was often through multilateral organizations. Um, Younger people in general have positive views of international organizations, But NATO often was talked about, particularly by those on the right, as an important security guarantee.
4: Is that, what you say, perhaps the biggest difference that you find between young adults and older generations, the importance of multilateralism?
3: In our survey data, that has certainly come up in many countries over time, that younger people are more likely to think positively of foreign organizations, more likely to think that we should work together to solve global problems. We only did the focus groups with young adults, so we didn't hear older people in their own words talk about it. But younger people certainly stress climate change as a major issue that needs to be tackled. And even people who are domestically focused, particularly in Europe, really see a role for their country to be active. There's almost an existential sentiment that we're the next generation who's going to have to live with these problems and we need to fix it. And we can only fix a global problem with a global solution.
4: When it comes to China, I think one of the things that was interesting, it seemed like there was more of a pragmatism than one might even expect from some, of the, some young adults in Europe in terms of still wanting to work with China. Is that particularly because of something like climate change?
3: There's definitely some element of, we need China as one of the largest countries in the world and one of the largest economies and as one of the largest emitters to get on board. We can't solve this problem without China. Though among Europeans, too, there was the, the we can't solve this without the U.S. and the U.S. should be doing more element. Um, people definitely mentioned the U.S. pulling out of the Paris climate deal, for example. But with China, there was also a resignation almost that even if we want to decouple our economies from China, it's impossible. Every product around the room they would point to, they'd say made in China. They'd recognize how dependent their own country's economy was on China. So it didn't feel like a possibility To decouple fully from China even if there was a desire to quote-unquote stand up to China more.
4: Was there a difference there between the European countries? You know Germany's approach particularly versus the UK or, or maybe France as well in terms of that pragmatism and whether you can actually decouple from China.
3: Truly there were more similarities than differences across the European countries when it came to focusing on the US and China where we heard more differences between the young adults really had to do with their own place in the world and how they should engage. For example, Germans were very cognizant of the history that their country has of being an aggressive power. And they really felt like Germany's place in the world today is to be a diplomatic force, to work through organizations, almost to be constrained in some meaningful way so they don't worry other powers and they can have the biggest impact if they work through the EU. The Brits obviously have a different perspective. They just pulled out of the EU and most of the young people in the groups were relatively despondent about that. So they're trying to figure out how to strike a balance to be a global superpower and to play a role when they've left what was probably the institution that made them more of a player than if they go it alone.
4: Talk a little more about how the war in Ukraine might have impacted the way that these young adults think. Did any of that change, for example, with with the Germans and the way that they viewed their own role in the world?
3: Ukraine was certainly top of mind for a lot of young adults. So we were doing these focus groups in November and December of this year, as people were looking around thinking, winter is coming, oil prices are high, inflation is a real concern. But where people differed in terms of how they thought about Ukraine really fell along kind of left and right ideological lines, as well as whether or not they view their country as a rich and kind of abundant power, or whether or not they see scarcity. So people who really think that their country is a rich superpower and a strong economy, they wanted to be taking an active stance in Ukraine, they wanted to be taking in Ukrainian refugees, um, and they often wanted to be collaborating internationally more. People who kind of looked at the crisis and thought about their own pocketbooks more, they didn't want to be doing those things, and they often wanted to be turning internally to build self-sufficiency when it comes to oil and gas. So it's definitely pervasive, but people approached it extremely differently. And especially kind of the, right, the right-leaning the right people who we would call more internationally engaged. They view strength as working with others, including in NATO. There's still an element of kind of the right domestically focused people who maybe want to have military strength and project it, but they don't want necessarily to be committing boots on the ground or to commit, be committing tanks in the case of Germany. And they, they still want to be seen as a global player. They don't want to be seen as a laughingstock. Sending only helmets to the mm. Ukrainian conflict was definitely something we heard about quite a bit. There was a sense that the Germans were too slow to get involved and did too little too late.
0: And that was Laura Silver, Director of Global Attitudes Research at the Pew Research Centre, speaking with Monocle's Chris Chermak in Washington. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin, and my guest, Alex von Tonselman, is still with me. She's an historian, a broadcaster and a screenwriter. Alex, one story that has absolutely shocked the world this uh, this week is... uh, uh, Uganda's anti-gay bill where they're bringing in the death penalty basically for uh, for same-sex people caught having same-sex sexual relationships. Uh, but it goes much further than that.
2: Yes, uh, there's a really interesting piece by Ishan in The Washington Post which looks very much at the American connection to this. Now, of course, we've heard from the American government that, uh, you know, a very strong response against this bill. Um, but um, what? Uh, Ishan digs into here really is the sort of background to it, the long, long roots of US evangelical organisations actually pushing for it, um, to the point of certain evangelists actually addressing the Ugandan parliament, you know, and millions and millions of dollars of spending to try to whip up exactly this kind of um, anti LGBTQ legislation, which of course is something they're also trying to push in the States, but appears that they've made much further strides in Uganda.
0: Uh, I mean, it's extraordinary. This article points out that Uganda is one of at least 67 countries that criminalises same-sex relationships. I had no idea.
2: Yes, it's an incredibly high number, isn't it? And, it, um, you know, I mean, as the article points out, some of this does date back, actually, to colonialism. Um, You know, British uh, colonial regimes often brought in anti-homosexuality legislation in countries that previously hadn't necessarily had any particular definition of homosexuality, let alone uh, criminal criminalizing it or anything like that. And of course, in a sense, what's happening now is kind of another wave of colonialism coming from these American fundamentalists who are going out to promote this. But we have to say it's clearly been um, highly successful culturally in certain ways. I mean, you know, there is overwhelming support in Uganda for this bill. It hasn't yet been signed by President Museveni, but it appears that there is a very high level of popular support for it, which of course is completely terrifying for Mm. the minorities living in that country. Uh,
0: And of course, there's an economic crisis worldwide, but particularly in that area. I mean, could it be that, as one analyst points out, that the, the authorities are searching for easy scapegoats to basically take the, to distract people from everything else that's going
2: on. Absolutely. I mean, we're used to this analysis, of course, you know, in, in Europe and the US of the culture wars are brought up basically a, as a way to distract from, you know, certainly in Britain, we can say this is exactly what the government are doing to try to distract from the fact they have no solutions on the economy or, you know, uh, any standards of living, anything yes, anything, <laughs> health work, anything else, um, the entire situation, you know, it's much easier to point over and, you know, look at that minority over there, look at these migrants, look at these trans people, whatever it is that they particularly want to blame at that point, or make the kind of, you know, make a sort of folk devil out of. Um, but, you know, I, I think obviously in Uganda, this is far, far more serious. I mean, you know, because we are talking about a bill that would actually bring in the death penalty, as you say. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing it will do, of course, is spark uh, migration. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, we already have a situation, of course, of, you know, huge refugee migrations um, across the world and that being intensely controversial in in Europe and particularly in Britain at the moment and so forth, you know, where there really are no safe routes to asylum. But I mean, you know, you can only say that faced with this law, clearly LGBTQ people in Uganda will have an extremely good case for asylum.
0: Well, one country that may welcome them is Canada, because Canada has a reputation for welcoming migrants. And in fact, its population grew by one million people through immigration. This is a story that The New York Times
2: is reporting on. Yes, I found this story kind of fascinating because it's such a different take on migration (laughs) than we're hearing from everyone else. Canada seems to be very pleased that its population has grown by a million people. It's it's actually the biggest kind of population growth uh, that Canada has seen since In fact, the Hungarian rebellion and the huge migration after that uh, in the sort of, you know, late 1950s... this enormous growth and actually quite a lot of that growth is you know I mean it's it's a million people but some you know I think 130,000 are Ukrainians for instance who of course are refugees um but there are complications even to that story so you know there are increasing numbers for instance of asylum seekers presenting themselves at Canada's border with the US those are people who've come through the US usually from Latin American countries um, and So Canada is trying to set up a sort of legal programme for those, um, but also has set up an agreement with the US where it can turn people back. So there are definitely complexities to this story of welcoming migration, but Canada needs a lot of migration unquestionably you know it's a it's a country with a, an aging highly educated population and like many of many of the countries in europe um it doesn't have you know a, a sort of the pyramid scheme of pensions that exists requires kind of more people to come in lower down that pyramid yeah, at, at all times
0: uh talking about sending things back the pope is doing just that he's sending back bits of the parthenon marbles
2: Yes. Well, this story taps into something that I know, uh, you know, Monocle readers and Monocle 24 listeners have been interested in for a while because I participated in a debate with Monocle magazine last year talking about the Parthenon marbles, which, of course, are so controversial in the British Museum. And, you know, this has been where we are in the UK is that actually it looks quite positive for a while as if there really might be some movement on this and then Rishi Sunak last week said well you know they're not going anywhere and everyone sort of thought oh right we're back to square one and then out of nowhere here we have this well not out of nowhere he's been talking about it for a while but suddenly this story breaks that Pope Francis has you know, given back these three fragments that the Vatican held of the Parthenon marbles. um, And very much, of course, this is being, you know, flagged as quite a sort of watershed moment, a very symbolic, uh, important symbolic moment. And, you know, the Pope coming out with some quite strong rhetoric about how this was the right thing to do and all of this, you know, which I'm sure will be heard in Whitehall
0: yes I just don't understand why with technology advancing as it is why don't we just sort
2: of I don't know make 3D copies or something I mean you could just you know yeah 3D print the whole Parthenon marbles (laughs) why not (laughs) Um, well I mean in some ways I mean that sort of even historically did happen because one of the things that was done with um, all of these kind of Greek and Roman statues is that casts were taken of them um, in the 19th century. So lots of uh, museums around Europe had cast collections and what they would do is cover a statue in, you know, rubber and then sort of, you know, make a mould and pour plaster into it. So actually quite a lot of statues, including the Parthenon marbles, are now a couple of centimetres smaller on all sides because this process was not terribly good for the marbles. So it's actually eroded them in lots of places.
0: And there we are where we began with things not being what they seem.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. a circle of life.
0: Alex Van Tunzelmann, thank you very much for joining me on the show today. And finally, let's recap what we've learned in the last seven days. Here's Monocle's Andrew Muller.
1: KICK IT! We learned this week of the grave and frankly disorienting possibility that Boris Johnson, Alexander Boris de Pfeffel, actual Johnson of all people, might not be a selfless, upstanding and punctilious servant of the people, but instead some sort of reckless, feckless, complacent, entitled cavalier gadabout, operating on the assumption that rules and consequences are for everyone else. We were as shocked as you were. Indeed, we'd be obliged to listeners if they would imagine this week's monologue being delivered from a position of anguished recline atop a fainting couch. And do we have a sound effect of a lacy handkerchief being dabbed daintily upon a feverish forehead? We learned all this from the increasingly former Prime Minister's appearance before a committee of his fellow MPs seeking answers vis-a-vis whether or not Johnson had intentionally misled the House of Commons over the half-farce, half-scandal known as Partygate. Partygate, by way of brisk recap, was the series of revelations to the effect that during the periods of the COVID-19 pandemic, when the people of the United Kingdom were being ordered to stay at home and shun human contact in the interests of public health and on pain of criminal sanction, 10 Downing Street was often difficult to distinguish from Led Zeppelin's dressing rooms. We learned from this week's testimony, however, that Boris Johnson could not have been expected to know about this or do anything about it. He only lived there and was the Prime Minister. And besides which, we learned... You can't expect human beings in an environment like uh, Number 10 to have, as it were, a invisible, electrified fence around them. They will occasionally drift into each other's orbit. Except, as might be reasonably pointed out, these were the very people who had drafted the rules which expected, indeed instructed, the rest of us to do exactly that. We also learned... It's customary to... safer world people in this country with a a toast. To which it might be increasingly impatiently retorted that it's also customary to turn up at the funerals of beloved family members in person, which many people didn't because Boris Johnson had told them not to. And slash but, we also learned that even when thrashing and blustering in a corner into which he has painted himself, nobody ushers a rival under the bus with quite Johnson's rarefied mix of ruthlessness and insouciance. Most important of all, If it was obvious to me that these events were contrary to the guidance and the rules, then it must have been equally obvious to dozens of others, including the most senior officials in the country, all of them, like me, responsible for drawing up the rules. And it must have been obvious to others in the building, including the current prime minister. We learned, however, and at least, that Johnson can still count on the devotion of a dogged coterie of loyalists, all very much people whose company he can definitely stand at least several minutes of, prominent among them Jacob Rees-Mogg, MP for 1852, who tweeted thus, as will now be read by our tedious Victorian LARPing desk chief, Callum McLean. Mm, Boris is doing very well against Marsu What Rees-Mogg was doing there, as we feel obliged to explain to listeners, perhaps insufficiently intellectually equipped to appreciate Rees-Mogg's lofty badinage, is suggesting that the House of Commons Privileges Committee is a kangaroo court. Do you see marsupials kangaroos? Come on, this is at least one millionth as clever as Rees-Mogg thinks he is. Anyway. Sticking with the theme of discovering that the promises of certain former national leaders may not be something you could put up as collateral, we also learned that one cannot necessarily take at face value the word of Donald Trump. (gasps) Where will... The revelations end. We learned late last week that Trump expected to be arrested this week for the amusingly nickel and dime offence of fudging the details of a hush money payoff to a porn star with whom he never had an affair. <coughs> We learned that Trump expected the law's long arm to feel his collar on Tuesday, which would have worked out brilliantly for this monologue, usually recorded on Thursday for broadcast on Friday. It would have given us plenty of time to put the whole thing together, pretty much written itself, and the clips of querulous botoxed charlatans pretending to lose their minds on Fox News would have padded the whole thing out nicely. Just imagine.
4: Mm -hmm, Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah. But as of the recording of this week's monologue we still had not learned the degree to which jailhouse jumpsuit orange clashes with the peculiar pallor of Trump's face. Honestly, there are weeks where it just feels like the entire universe is not organised exclusively for our convenience and just think of the hassle it would save if it was.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
1: We did at least learn, however, that whatever happens or doesn't, Trump still gonna Trump. We learned that an investigation into the whereabouts of gifts presented to Trump during his term as president by importuning foreign potentates has discovered that more than a hundred are unaccounted for, including two of the most Donald Trump things you can imagine Donald Trump pinching. From Japan, a set of golf clubs. From El Salvador, a life-size painting of... himself. One last check of the news wires. Gah. Well, there's always next week, or there was always this week, if the big goose has annoyed us one more time by getting lifted in between recording and broadcast. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: Many thanks there to Andrew. And uh, that's it for Monocle on Saturday. And of course, the programme will return at the same time next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Much more from me and the team throughout the day. But for now, goodbye and thanks for listening.